Gracious Father, we thank you for so many things happening in the life of our church family. We thank you for the, um, the blessing that, it, that, it, that that is. Um, Father, we thank you, though, now for the time that we can take out of our, I guess, um, busy schedule uh, for many of us, um, the time that we can take out to hear you speak to us in your word. And we know that when the Bible is read um, by people... Uh, uh, to to us when your word is read and your spirit is active that is you speaking directly to us so we pray by your spirit you would take this word uh, uh, work it into our hearts convict us encourage us we pray and help us to live more and more for your glory in jesus name amen now i believe a microphone is going to be taken to oh you've got a mic great thanks jill Reading from Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made him an ornate robe. When his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to the, his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the sheep near Shechem. Come, and I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I am looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, 
Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance before he reached them. They plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognised it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. We come to Joseph. Uh, once again, I've given you a very helpful outline. Um, if you are taking notes, there'll be three points. The first one is Joseph. The second one is Judah. The third one is Joseph and Judah. What do we learn? Okay, that's where we're heading. Let me pray. Father, please soften our hearts and sharpen our minds as we look at your word and think about our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, according to the BibleProject.com, 43% of the Bible is narrative says something, I think. History, 
testimonies, stories, parables. It's actually the most common type of literature in the Bible, which goes against the assumptions of many that it's all about rules. We recently finished a long-running series on the Gospel of John. Today we begin a five-week series on the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Both are narrative, but very different types of narrative in some ways. There's obviously a massive historical gap between John's Gospel, written at the end of the first century AD, and Joseph, who lived probably 2,000 years before that. If we think that there's a, a cultural gap between us and the time of Jesus, well, double that when we're thinking about Joseph. And there are, there are many things there uh, that you will see as we go along, and, and some of them we're just not going to have time to look at. We just have to keep that in mind. But it's not just the culture gaps that we need to keep in mind. We, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but we also believe that the Bible is the unfolding Word of God. God's plan of salvation is revealed progressively. More is revealed about God the further we progress through the Bible, bit by bit by bit, until wham, bam, Jesus arrives. Jesus is the answer to all the questions raised in the Old Testament. Jesus is the perfection of all the models and patterns established in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises, practices, and prophecies found in the Old Testament. So you see, the New Testament is showing us its role in a way is to show us that Jesus answers, perfects, and fulfills everything in the Old Testament. Got to keep that in mind as we look at Genesis. It needs to be read very differently from John. In some ways, it can point us more towards the problems of the human race than the solutions. And so we can't just take what Genesis describes and use it to prescribe behavior. It will teach us about right and wrong as God sees it, but it's an incomplete picture. We can't properly understand Genesis in isolation because the, the Old Testament is constantly firing arrows forward to point to Jesus. Our stage in history where we can look back on all of this is very privileged indeed. Having said that, the firing of the very first arrow or arrows that point to Jesus comes from Genesis. And that crucial arrow will have an arc that reaches right over the Bible to Jesus. And that first arrow, of course, is the promise or promises made to Abraham, beginning in Genesis chapter 12. God promises Abraham blessing and nationhood. His family, which he doesn't have yet, his family would be blessed so that they would become a nation. And then that nation will be the source of blessing to the whole world. God tells Abraham that through his offspring, all the families of the world would be blessed. God's global blessing through one blessed family, the nation of Israel. And of course, it's no accident that when Jesus is born, he's not only the son of God, he's also a son of Abraham. And so we come to Genesis 37 and 38, and this little family of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, it's a pretty important family in the scheme of things. What kind of family is equal to such a task to be the one blessing 
blessed and then the blessing to the world. It all does look a little bit precarious as we look at these chapters. First, Joseph. He's 17 when we meet him. He has 10 older brothers and one younger brother, Benjamin. And Joseph is precocious and unwise, to say the least. He's out with some of them, tending the sheep. And when they get home, he thinks it's a good idea to give his father a bad report about his brothers. Good one. Jacob, the father, is also pretty unwise because he loves Joseph more than he loves the rest of his sons. And he makes Joseph an ornate robe. Andrew Lloyd Webber called it a technicolour dream coat. Uh, it may well have been multicoloured. We, we do know that it was very special, probably a kingly style of robe indicating special favour on Joseph. Joseph, of course, has some dreams that he very well could have kept to himself. But he seems to want to make matters worse, so he reports them to his brothers. Guess what, guys? I had a dream. All your sheaves of grain bowed down to mine. Amazing. Aren't you happy for me? And in his second dream, the sun, the moon and 11 stars, I wonder who they all are. They all bow down to me too. And his dad, his dad rebukes him for thinking that his family might one day bow down to him. His brothers, on the other hand, they are seething by this stage with hatred. And so one day the older brothers are off grazing their sheep and Jacob sends Joseph to find out how they're going. They, he doesn't seem to have picked up on this tension, obviously. They see Joseph in the distance and suddenly they're all thinking the same thought. We kill him and we make up a story about some animal devouring him. They rip off his robe, they throw him into an empty cistern as they're sitting around eating dinner, some Ishmaelites approach on the way to trade in Egypt and Judah, who is the fourth son of Jacob, he suddenly sees an opportunity. Rather than killing Joseph, who is after all their own blood, such loyalty, uh, they can make money out of him and they can get rid of him at the same time. So they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus would later be sold by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Obviously the brothers still have to concoct a story for their father, so they kill a goat, dip the robe in its blood, take it back to their father who tears his clothes with grief. And if they thought that in the fullness of time their father would recover from his mourning and perhaps love them like he used to love jo Joseph, they would be sorely mistaken. Jacob says, no, I will not be comforted. I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Jacob is a broken man. The brothers haven't really spared Joseph's life at all. They've only effectively sent him off to die somewhere else by someone else's hand and they've made money from it. It's equivalent to about two years' wages. God's little family of blessing. They are liars and backstabbers. They're profiting from the likely death of their kin. This seems to be 
a bit of a crisis, I think, for God's plan of blessing in some ways. The seed of destruction for the human race was planted back in Genesis 3 and has grown into a ferocious, noxious weed. That seed is sin, the rejection of God and his ways and his will. And Abraham, the, the, the one through whom the, the, the restoration would happen, he, he only has this one set of descendants through whom his blessing would be fulfilled. He's already blessed Jacob over Esau, and Isaac has been blessed over Ishmael. These violent brothers here, gathering around the cistern, they are it. They're the vehicle of God's blessing to the world. A bit scary, don't you think? Is God's promise under threat? Well, the problems go even deeper, as we'll see in the next chapter. So second, Judah, he's the fourth of the sons. And we're going to pause for a moment and hear our second reading, which is Genesis 38. Thank you. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. There Judah met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who named him Ur. She conceived again and was given birth to a son whose name was Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kebiz that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfil your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up an offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing an offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Tinmar and to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hera, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enanayim, which was on the road to Tinmah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me if to sleep with you? She asked. I will send a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judas sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enayim? There hasn't been a shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when then he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez and his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was named Zerah. Interesting. Where did that come from? It's one of those chapters, isn't it? <laughs> Can't we just skip over it and get back to Joseph and find out what happens to him? Well, this would be one of the easiest chapters to skip, uh, but we believe that all the Bible is the Word of God, that the Spirit has put this in the Bible for a reason, and right here in the middle of the Joseph story for a reason too. Remember, we can't take what Genesis describes and use it to prescribe behavior. Things will work out in the end for Judah and for Tamar, but not as a reward for good behavior. Both of them act wickedly here in one way or another, and yet for Judah, there will be here the beginning of a transformation. 
Later on in the Joseph story, in chapter 44, Judah will have been further transformed, as will all of his brothers, by the working of God in their lives. He will offer his life in exchange for the life of his younger brother, as we'll see. But here we are back in the bad old days, chapter 38, and Judah has gone walkabout. He's left his father's house and the land that God had given them, and he's off doing his own thing. He's made friends with an Adolamite and married a Canaanite. It seems God's promise of blessing to his great, that he made to, his, to, his, to Judah's great-grandfather is a long way from his mind. So Judah's wife bears him three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. They're not going to work for naming boys today. Ur acts wickedly, and uh, God puts him to death. We don't know the details. And then we come to Onan and this odd custom where a man's inheritance can be preserved if he has died before being able to produce an heir. Uh, A dead man's brother was obliged to sleep with his brother's widow to produce a child to carry on his brother's name and inheritance. So this is a bloodline question. And Tamar, even though she's not connected to Israel, except through her original marriage to Ur, she wants to do the right thing by her dead husband, and she actually has inheritance rights here that are supposed to be protected. But Onan won't participate. He, of course, would reduce his own inheritance if Tamar has a child. And God punishes Onan's wickedness as well as Ur's wickedness. So now we've only got one brother left, Shelah, and his dad Judah later admits that he had kept Shelah back from Tamar. He'd said to Tamar, why don't you go back to your own family and I'll plan to give you Shelah when he gets a bit older. The implication is your daddy can look after you, you're none of my business anymore. Well, then both Judah and Tamar sin in their own way. Tamar deceives Judah into giving her an heir and someone to look after her in her old age. She dresses as a prostitute and woos him. Judah is apparently mourning the death of his wife and he takes comfort in the arms of this mysterious veiled woman by the wayside. Tamar is very clever you have to admit. She's picked a, a high-risk strategy in a society that has the death penalty for prostitution. She asks for payment for her services. He offers her a goat. He actually is a goat. Of course, he doesn't have a goat handy, so she asks for some kind of guarantee. He offers her some uniquely identifiable personal items of his own. It'd be like her keeping his driver's license as a guarantee that she'll get paid at some point. Of course, she has no interest in receiving a goat, uh, so she makes like the wind. She wants to be pregnant. She wants to have protection against being exposed for the way she's gone about it. And she's got it in her pocket. Well, Tamar's prostitution is reported to Judah, and he rather self-righteously, you'd have to say, brings down a death sentence on her, (laughs) but is humiliated when she sends a message to him asking if he could possibly identify this seal and cord and staff, which of course are his own, 
because they were owned by the person who got her pregnant. Oops. It's rather embarrassing. But what does Judah, Judah do here? He actually acknowledges his sin and Tamar's righteousness and also Tamar's inheritance right here. There is the beginning of a transformation for him. She gives birth to twins, one of whom is named Perez. Now, I think this story is placed here for two reasons that sprang to mind. Uh, first, Judah's boys are a hopeless bunch of sinful dimwits. And this story really drives that home in some ways. God is surely going to have to fix this. You add it into the previous chapter and it all looks pretty messy. Second, Joseph and Judah, they're actually pretty significant factors, pretty significant characters. Each of them will play a central role in bringing blessing through this family. Joseph will become the saviour of many people, as we'll see through the story that will unfold over the next few chapters. Judah will become the ruler of Israel. In particular, the kings of Israel will come from Judah's line. In chapter 38, he is AWOL, but by the sovereign grace of God, he is restored, as is his bloodline. God has somehow worked this, his sovereignty through these crazy sordid acts to bring about the restored bloodline. You know, you flip back to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament, and you know whose name pops up there in that list? Perez and Judah and Tamar. Perez, of course, is listed as the ancestor of one David, king of Israel. And therefore, Perez is also, of course, the ancestor of Jesus. Funny, isn't it? Right here in this sordid, mutually deceptive, passionate, sinful act between Judah and Tamar, God is busy somehow miraculously guaranteeing the bloodline of the future king of kings. Our perfect saviour Jesus. Judah had no idea. The writer of Genesis, I think, had no idea. But we know because we've seen this story fulfilled. God truly does work in remarkable, mysterious ways. Well, let's try and tie this together. Joseph and Judah, what do we learn? God's plans for blessing are in no way under threat, actually, despite appearances. It's a really important lesson, isn't it, for life? God's plans for blessing are in no way under threat, despite appearances. Because he uses, get this, he uses people's failures to bring about his blessing. He is always bringing the good from the bad. And I just want to look for, for a moment at three ways I think that he brings the good from the bad. Firstly, God brings transformation of flawed people. Now, I don't know what you think the church is. 
I hope you don't think it's a bunch of good people trying to demonstrate to each other and to God just how good we are. That's not the church. Something in us is indeed horrified by the kind of sin that Joseph's brothers have committed. But do we find ourselves saying, thank goodness I'm not like them. I would never seek to profit from someone else's peril. Of course, it's much easier to see faults in others than in ourselves. Sometimes, you know, it's funny. I know some of us can very easily bring our faults into our heads. You know, that's true. But, you know, for some of us, I think sometimes it's hard to bring to mind, you know, those, those sins that we talk about. But for a moment this morning... Uh, the collective sin of the brothers nudges me for a moment to think about that idea of collective culpability for a minute. And I want to ask us, I think, a fairly searching question in some ways. Is our prosperity in some ways built on the peril of others? I was recently watching a drama uh, on TV set in America before the Civil War and uh, you know, the slaves have been shipped across from Africa and they're the workhorses for the building of the wealth of the white settlers. The blacks had no rights, they certainly had no wealth, and yet they harvested and they laboured on the white people's properties and they built the white people's houses and the white people's roads. And so the prosperity of white America was built in some way on the peril of these, of black America. And I couldn't help thinking of our own situation here in Australia. The white settlers here obviously had instructions from London to settle and build. And so the first, in, first Australians were in some ways an obstacle to that. They were a problem that needed to be dealt with. And when conflicts inevitably uh, erupted, the whites could always inflict more damage. And so ultimately, Anglo society prevailed and Australia has become a prosperous nation. I know I've summarised it very <laughs> concisely. We've got a strong economy. We have food and electricity. We can own our houses. We can make them comfortable to live in. But I just can't help myself thinking sometimes that our forebears threw the first Australians into the system. And that in some ways... I know this is a very uncomfortable thought, but in some ways our prosperity is built on the back of their peril. And I personally feel quite compromised over this. Of course, if it turns out that we actually are compromised, that's not the end of the line for us, is it? Being realistic about our culpability, whether it's individual or whether it's as part of this, this bigger collective culpability, being realistic about it is actually what we need because it's flawed people that God uses and it's flawed people that God restores. And as we'll see next week, God transformed the precocious Joseph into a pillar of virtue as he withstands Potiphar's wife. And his brothers would eventually be transformed too, as we'll see in a few more weeks. 
Well, that's the first thing. God brings transformation of flawed people. Secondly, God brings blessing even through sin. It's not that God somehow has to sidestep sin or dodge sin in order to bring his blessing. Miraculously, he brings it through sin. Not through his own sin, through our sins. Joseph found himself exactly where God needed him to be, precisely as a result of his brother's sin. Who would have thought God makes this, his man prime minister of the empire of Egypt? Sorry if I've spoiled the story for you. I mean, that's no small thing, is it? You think about the Egyptian empire in the day, and his man is the, is the prime minister. And Joseph will be able to save many, many lives, not just those of his own family, because of God sovereignly overseeing what would happen as a result of his brother's sin. This is, this is remarkable. So think back about the, the first Australians. Though the sins committed against them, through the sins committed against them, you know the gospel of Christ came to this country and today is believed by a disproportionately high percentage of indigenous people. God works through sin. Well, what about our sin? What about your sin? Do you believe that God can work the outcomes of your sins together to bring good? Of course he can. And the third thing, that, the way in which God brings good out of bad, God brings salvation by a rejected saviour. Joseph becomes a saviour by being rejected. Well, so too Jesus the saviour was rejected by his fellow descendants of Abraham too. In fact, the parallels are striking. You know, Jesus, you know, we think about Joseph and his dreams. Well, think about Jesus and some of his predictions to his brothers about his own glory and honour that would happen. He did, didn't he? At his trial, the high priest asked Jesus, this is from Mark's Gospel, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is predicting more than sitting at Pharaoh's side. He's predicting that he's at the right hand of God. You will bow down. And how did they... How did they respond to that? Well, the high priest tore his clothes. He condemns Jesus as worthy of death and effectively throws him in the cistern, marches him off to Pilate. And this heinous sin where God's people murdered God's Messiah would, through the amazing sovereignty of God, be the means by which the promise of blessing would actually be fulfilled. Extraordinary. The rejection would enable the blessing. Isn't it incredible? So today I want to finish by encouraging you to rejoice in this God and not to be downcast, but to rejoice that God's blessing is unstoppable. Neither the sins of the past nor the sins of the present or the future can, none of them can stop his determination to bless the promised, the people of the world. We don't need to know every detail of how he will do it. We just need to remember that he knows our flaws. He knows the things that we've done. 
He offers us complete forgiveness, complete justification, and will still bless us. And so the question is, will you put your faith in Jesus? Will you put your faith in him? Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for this story from such a distant historical past that shows us the messiness of humanity, but also shows your effortless fulfillment of your promises. And Father, as we think about this, we really do need to trust you. We imagine Joseph in prison without a sense of where this would all go. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to see the big picture and to know that, all, that your blessing is certain and that we need to keep hanging on to Christ. Father, whatever our circumstances are, whatever our uncertainty is, whatever our impatience is, we just pray for, um, for your help and we pray that you would take even, this, even the bad things that we've done and somehow bring good because we know that you work all things together to bring good for those you love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.